Hello and welcome to another episode of the Selfish Podcast. Today we have Mr. Jay and I'm really excited to get to know his story, his life and his journey. So welcome Jay. Can you just tell me and the audience where in the world are you and what time of day is it for you? <laughs> I am in uh, New York. It is currently 10 a.m. in the morning here. Um, it's a beautiful but chilly day. Oh nice. I'm in the south of Spain and it's 4 p.m. for me. And I always like, I'm fascinated that we can connect in such an instant at such distance uh, these days. And it's just beautiful to be able to do so. So I'm always curious to know where my guests are from. And yeah, so interesting. Yeah, it is. Uh, You know, one of the things I like to do, this is audio um, now, but oftentimes when I'm on a Zoom and I'm talking to somebody from, it doesn't matter, New Zealand or Wales or Canada, you know, I like to like look at how, you know, just the setup of, of people's lives. Like, you know, do they like motivational pictures on their wall? Do like, do they, are they more into family pictures or, you know, do they have a Zen background? So it's always fascinating to look at people's houses and how it's set up. And it really tells you a lot about the individual person. Yeah, definitely. I was going to do video uh, podcasts, but because of my, uh, what would say lifestyle, it's a little bit more tricky because I do all my um, podcasts and all my content uh, from my phone and I'm using a phone signal so that the possibility of the video quality being lessened is why I haven't done video at the moment, although it does oh, go yeah, on YouTube. Um, but I, I will paint you a picture of what my environment looks like. I am sitting <laughs> under a load of trees, big silver trees uh, by a lake um, with mountain views and no one around. That's where that's so what's your where are you sitting? What does your room look like? What do you have on the walls? Um, so to be honest with you, uh, I, I have, um, we live in a relatively spacious house. We have a, a about a 5,000 square foot house. Um, and so, uh, I'm actually in the spare bedroom right now, um, because my in-laws are living with us. Um, and they're, they're in my usual office space, which is in the in-law suite downstairs. Um, but, uh, in, in, in the spare bedroom, it's, uh, it's also known as our travel room. So everywhere we travel, we have like a little knickknack or a token gift from that place. So, um, it's nice. I look around and it just reminds me of all the places we traveled and all the, the lovely sights and scenes that I've seen along the way. Oh, nice. It sounds very nice. And yeah, that's a big house. And I always think when someone says New York, I can't help just think of New York City. So how far are you from the actual city? You know something? uh, That's what um, the majority of people uh, um, assume. And it's completely understandable because, you know, that's what's really in all the media is New York City. But I'm actually from upstate New York. So it's about four hours from New York City. Um, I, I often refer to this uh, area as cow tipping town because there's a lot of farms in my area. Um, and certainly uh, I used to live in New York City and um, I paid about $4,000 a month for a closet size apartment. <laughs> um, and so for that price, you can get pretty much what I'm living in now, um, uh, you know, which is a 5,000 square foot house um, in a very, very nice area. So New York City and upstate New York are probably two different states, to be honest with you. I mean, in theory. Yeah, and I can only—I haven't been to America yet, uh, so I can only go by what I've seen on documentaries or movies. And it seems like if you just drive an hour out of the city, you're actually surrounded in beautiful nature. Most definitely, yeah, absolutely, that is the case. 
Um, nice. I, I like to get to know my guests uh, more personally, and I like to start with the childhood. So can you paint me a picture of what your life was like, say, pre-10 years old, what your parents did and where you grew up? Mm. Um, all right. Well, um, uh, first, let me premise this with I <clears throat> probably that's why I <laughs> becoming a betrayal trauma practitioner found me was um, unfortunately a lot of childhood trauma. So. Um, uh, uh, I was raised, uh, initially in a mom and dad home. Um, and when we were about six years old, we bought our first house. Um, an accident happened. We had a house fire. We weren't home when it happened. We were actually away for the weekend, but when we returned home, um, we, we, we pulled into our driveway, only seeing our chimney standing in the driveway. There was nothing left of our house. All of our toys, our family heirlooms, our first haircuts. I mean, you know, all we saw was a chimney. That's it. So, um, uh, and you know, it's interesting. I mean, it was, the fire was still burning uh, when we pulled in, um, even though, well, the smoke was there because, you know, the fire, uh, the fire, uh, you know, came and all that stuff. But I can still smell um, the, the smoke from the fire. And, you know, one of the things I I will go back to your question, I apologize to digress, but I just want to say one of the things that I often tell people as a betrayal trauma practitioner is that our sense of smell, the olfactory gland has the longest memory out of all of our senses. So that's why even today, and I'm going on 50 years old, even today, if I'm at a campfire roasting marshmallows, all I have to do is smell smoke. And I'm that six-year-old right back in front of that fire because that was traumatic. I mean, watching my parents, how they responded emotionally and physically to that, to, to, uh, to their life completely destroyed, that was extremely traumatic. Um, so anyway, um, you know, with, this, with the uh, circumstances surrounding that fire, we wound up staying with a family member. Uh, that family was, uh, you know, um, was, uh, sexually abusive towards me. And, um, that was a secret that I held for many, many years. Uh, by the time we did kind of get back on our feet, which was a few years later, um, my parents, I think, uh, the trauma kind of divided them. I mean, they were having some marital issues before, but that was, I think the, the, um, needle on the camel's back or the, you know, straw on the camel's back. And, uh, so they kind of went through a separation and, um, I stayed with my mother at the time. And, um, that was a pretty challenging situation because my mother at that time, you know, she grew up on a farm. So the only boy she ever kissed was my father. I mean, and she was 19 years old. She never really experienced much of life. She grew up on a farm. She worked on a farm. Um, So when we moved into the city, when we finally got on our feet, I think my mom kind of got a taste of, um, you know, life (laughs) and the world. And she, she, I think, wanted to relive a lot of her younger years. So. Um, so we, uh, there was a lot of partying at our house and along with partying, there comes with no sleep, you know, for us kids going to school, a lot of, um, you know, sex and drugs and loud music. And, um, so, uh, I wound up quitting school in sixth grade. Um, what age is sixth grade, sir? Just for us over here on the other side of the pond, as it said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's about, um, 13 ish, I'm guessing. Um, 
so uh, I quit school for multiple reasons. Number one, I couldn't ever get any sleep. So I would always be late and um, I was failing every single grade. And, um, and because of the um, circumstances at home, I was always in trouble in school. So even the very few times I was in school, I was always in the office. Um, on top of that, I had a younger sister that I was always trying to um, protect or help raise because she was in the same environment. So it just got to be too, school, unfortunately, got to be too much. So I, I quit school. Um, and then probably within a year, um, I just couldn't, I couldn't take the environment anymore. So I wound up leaving my house, um, uh, which, which found me on the streets. And I was there for a little while until um, I secured um, a couple jobs. And at that age, you really can't secure decent jobs and you can't secure decent hours because of working you know, rules and regulations and protocol. But um, I was able to talk my way into two different jobs, bagging groceries at a local grocery store when I was 14 years old. And I told one manager that I used to go to school at night, so he would give me hours during the day to work. And then the other store, I told the manager I worked, um, you know, opposite. So, you know, I would work bagging groceries in the morning for a couple hours um, and then run to the other side of town and bag groceries at the other store. And then I was able to secure, uh, my first apartment at 14. And oh, that's nice. what, I, that's what I did. I, uh, secured an apartment and, um, and, and basically lived like that until, um, I decided my life was going nowhere and I had to make some changes. I'm going to stop there in case you have any questions or I'm happy to continue. Yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating. And thank you so much for sharing and just being open. Like, that's a lot of experiences uh, from a young age. Um, first thing that comes to mind and is, is where, where was your father after the split? What happened with him? So, you know, my father, um, my father, uh, he was a good father. But, um, you know, I think a lot of men, their focus is, you know, let me, I have to work. I mean, you know, we live in a culture and a society where, you know, unfortunately a man's paycheck is tied to his self-worth. Um, and I think my father was busy working a lot, not to mention, unfortunately, my mother made it very clear if he came around, she would call the authorities on him. So he was always um, in a bind, he wanted to see his kids and in the times that he did see us, it was, a, it was nice, but he really couldn't see us often or, um, or else my mother would threaten, you know, to call the authorities on him. And if my father were to get in trouble with the authorities, then he certainly wouldn't be able to see his kids. So it was, you know, it was a different time. We're talking, you know, 40 years ago. So it was a different time for many things. Like, for instance, there'd be no way a 14 year old would be able to secure two jobs today because um, we, you know, the security has been tightened. Education has been tightened. So many things have changed. I mean, I was thrown into special ed when I was in third grade. Um, and that was for having a simple lisp. I couldn't pronounce like my R's or my L's or my W's. And special ed 40 years ago is not the special ed that it is today. Um, you know, 40, well, today, special ed, you have all the kids are in the same class. Well, at least that's how it is here in America. All the kids are in the same class, unless you are an extreme case, all kids with special needs, whether it's learning disabilities, emotional disabilities, what have you, they're all in the same class and you have what's called push in or pull out. So all children are integrated into, you know, mainstream school again, unless you're an extreme case. 
um, 40 years ago, that wasn't the case. You had one huge gymnasium sized room with maybe one teacher and a teaching assistant with every possible uh, diagnosis um, in that room. Um, and you were looked at as a freak. So the very few friends that I had kind of distanced themselves because they didn't want to be associated with a freak. So um, school was rough. You know, school was definitely um, a rough time. But like I said, times are changing. Even, you know, going back to my father's thing, nowadays that wouldn't fly. My, you know, if the authorities were called, they would, they would understand, you know, what my mother was doing and the uh, attempts that maybe she was trying to manipulate the situation and that wouldn't fly. But 40 years ago, all you had to do was, you know, be a female, call the cops on your husband. There was no questions asked. He was, you know, either hauled off to jail or um, something. So, you know, times are changing, you know, some, some good, some bad. Um, But, you know, we live in a different world today than we did 40 years ago. Yeah, and I, I can relate in some extent to some of the experiences. Like my parents split when I was fairly young, about five years old, and my mum got custody um, because she was a female, and my dad wanted the custody, but there was just no way or means of him doing it, and that was uh, how that was thirty years ago, and. Um, my mom suffered severe schizophrenia and she was no way capable of looking after me and my brother. Like we went without food. Um, we was looking after her. We didn't learn the basic sort of skills of like cleaning and doing things in the house. So the house was an absolute wreck, uh, uh-huh. mold growing out the sink and moldy fridges. And like, it was chaos and really traumatic. And we hid, we still got to see our father on the weekends. He would come and pick us up and take us away. Um, but we hid every aspect of our weekly life because we were so excited for that weekend. We didn't want to bring it with us or bring him down. So he didn't find out how bad it was. And he still doesn't really know because he doesn't like to even ask. Uh, but we have shared more with him because um, we have a different perspective on that experience now. But I can still see it so painful for him because it's new information for him to to hear. And he's reliving it. So we still don't fully express how bad it was um, just to protect him in ways. Certainly. But yeah, that... that uh, issue of not being able to get custody i was actually my the episode that i just done went out on sunday was a lady from japan and her parents split and in japan back when this must have been for her like 30 40 years ago as well the male gets custody is the way it goes so her dad got custody oh, wow. um, but she was getting sexually abused by her dad and by her uncles who all lived in the house mm-hmm. and there was no way like that it was just the way the authority worked the male gets custody and there's nothing she could do about it no one believed her anyway yeah so it's really interesting to hear the different in the dynamic um so yeah my 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 next question i always ask my guests and i'm curious with yours because of all the events that you went through at such a young age did you do you remember your earliest like aspiration your dream or a goal or something you wanted to become one day you know um I'll tell you something. When you are a child, it's very hard to have the mental capacity or the wherewithal to forward think. Um, Now, when you add trauma onto that childhood, your entire existence is in survivor mode. Um, You know, I, I, you know, as an, as a betrayal trauma practitioner, now I'm, I'm constantly talking and teaching about the nervous system and the fight or flight response and things like that. When you are a child and you're in a state and you're in an environment of constant stress, your nervous system um, is on hypervigilant and your only, your only thought, if you have a thought, is survival. Where am I going to get my next meal? Am I going to be able to sleep tonight? If somebody comes in and tries to molest me in my bedroom, how am I going to get out of that situation? Your only 
thoughts are survival. So to, you know, aspirations, um, I, I think it was when I was homeless, probably, you know, in my teens. And I was sitting under the bridge um, watching all the cars go by or, you know, or listening to the cars above me go by and always imagining, um, you know, this perfect family uh, talking to their kids in the backseat about how they're going on vacation or they're going to go visit their favorite relative. And um, and I, I was envious of that. I was jealous of that because all I wanted was to be from a loving, close family. Um, something I, I never experienced. Um, and probably to answer your question, it was probably around that time where I can't say I had aspirations per se, but I did know I wanted better. And so that was probably one of the seeds at that time where I said, okay, I got to start making some changes because I don't know what my future holds, but I certainly can't keep living the way I am. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And yeah, I imagine because like, my childhood trauma, like I said, I wasn't being attacked, um, but it was like chaos. And yeah. like I said, my mom's behavior was so strange. Uh, it just gave me a really heightened sense of awareness. And like I said, when I saw other families, I saw my friends and I go around their house and their mom's making them dinner and they're getting angry at them and not getting exactly what they want. It used to drive me insane because I was like, at least your mom's making you dinner. And I was <laughs> oh, yeah. seeing all these things and I was seeing people have what looked like a perfect life to me compared to mine. Yeah. And it did yeah. give me a lot of bitterness, a lot of resentment, a lot of anger. Um, luckily, I found for me, I found boxing when I was really young and I went to a boxing club and I got to take out a lot of aggression, a lot of anger. I never um as much as my coach said i'd be good at competitive fighting i had no interest in it i oh. just wanted to hit something and i'll just destroy the bag and destroy my hands and mm. um that outlet really uh, i don't know where i'd be or if i would be here if it wasn't for that in my in my early youth um did you find anything uh, i know you said you got a job and that work might have been it but did you find anything in that time that gave you a, some sort of worth to carry on living? Because I imagine you went through periods where life was unbearable and you start to question that life. You know, um, I told you I had a younger sister that I was close to and I really tried to do my best to save her. Uh, but it's, but it, but you know, it's, it's awfully difficult when you're a child yourself with no resources. Um, it's very difficult to save yourself from uh, challenges and difficult difficulties and struggles, let alone trying to um, save, you know, a younger sibling. But, um, you know, I, um, uh, I was never suicidal. Let me just get, I was never, never had any suicidal thoughts um, in any capacity. Um, I, I always, you know, wanted to continue probably to, um, eventually know that I was going to make a better life for myself so I can help my younger sibling. Um, maybe it was faith. Um, you know, I, uh, the first couple of years of my life were very, very faith driven. And I always held on to that. I hold on to that still to this day, um, probably stronger, you know, more than, more than ever. Um, so, um, you know, and there were periodic, periodic moments where I did see extended family. They didn't know the extent of anything, but there were times I saw extended family and those connections were very meaningful. So, um, so you know, it's probably um, uh, a little bit of a few things that kept me going. 
Oh, okay, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, because my, my assumption would have been that, yeah, that life would have been questioned, but maybe I'm just going off my own personal experience because I had suicidal thoughts from like seven years old. Uh-huh. Um, I just couldn't take my experience and it was like the pain of the external felt like it was just too much and too repetitive too too much of a problem and that was like a reoccurrence all the way up until 2015 was my last um issue with it and it's completely eradicated since then once my perception shifted so much and interestingly a huge part of that was faith um because i grew up a sort of catholic christian i'm still not even sure to this day to be honest what exactly was going on because i was very young uh-huh. uh, but my nan was irish so i'm pretty sure it was catholic but i remember going to church and i remember but when my nan passed all that stuff sort of disappeared um but when i was really young and my mum was suffering and i was suffering i was praying i was on my hands and knees crying praying praying through my childhood and i didn't feel like i was getting any answers or anything so it made me really qu- question god question life um and i became very sort of anti-religious you know because i was yeah. like I, and i was questioning everyone's faith i'd look at everyone and all the different religions and i was really intrigued i got obsessed with all the religious debates in my teens <laughs> like listening to every single person talk and i was just like yeah this doesn't make sense that uh, yeah and it wasn't until sort of 2015 that my life fell apart even more so more than i could ever believe even though it already been chaotic um and i had my last suicide thought and then something shifted within me in that in that last moment just before i was about to do it and then from that moment on things started to change and then within like a year and like now i'll call myself a man of faith um i don't attach myself to any particular religion but i have an abundance of faith now and it's something i couldn't even fathom or think about or feel uh, years ago and that strength um i find so balancing is the best way i i could put it it's so inspiring Yeah, yeah. You know, um I'll tell you something. Uh for me personally, personally I think faith uh is one of the absolute by far best and strongest resources we have to 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 help us fight life challenges. Um now professionally, obviously I do not bring faith into any coaching session whatsoever unless my client brings faith into the coaching session because you because that you know unfortunately um you know I have a lot of clients right now that have treatment trauma and I would say probably 30 to 40 and I can't even believe I'm saying this is a high number about 30 to 40% of those that have treatment trauma came from a pastor or a minister um and this is why when and I'll give you an example um let's just say a wife finds out her husband is being unfaithful well she goes to the church pastor and the church pastor has the best intentions absolutely the best intentions but if he says well you need to go home and be submissive to your husband and um you know c- cook him meals and and he'll stop you know he'll stop meeting women or he'll stop watching porn or and and now now they have trauma on top of trauma so i think pastors and ministers and priests and you know all the people of the cloth I think they have wonderful intentions. The problem is they're not trauma informed. So um so you you know again on a personal level I'm all about spirituality and and tapping into that but you got to be careful cuz you can very much hurt somebody who's had um trauma from their pastor um or you know and things like that. So if somebody comes to me and they're are a believer or they want to they want to address their challenges from a spiritual perspective, 
we're fine. We're fine because I, I, you know, I can meet them there, but I certainly don't bring that into my session at all. Um, because again, you can hurt someone. And I'll tell you something, this goes back to saying this because a lot of people assume, uh, betrayal comes from a partner, a spouse, a significant other. And while that's true, betrayal can come from anyone that we have any primary attachment to. You can have betrayal from your parents. You can have betrayal trauma from your children. You can have betrayal trauma from, um, your creator, God, um, like, for instance, and in what was your story, Luke? You were just saying, you know, you prayed and said, God, help me, help me, help me. And you felt like, you know, he wasn't doing much or you weren't hearing from him. You could feel as if you were betrayed by God. So um, betrayal trauma, really, any you can experience that from anyone where you have any, um, where, you're, where you're getting any resource from, at any primary attachment. And like I said, that could be a boss. That could be your creator. That could be your significant other. That could even be yourself, Luke. I mean, mm. I talk to women all the time who are, who are angry because they say, you know, I exercised and I prayed and I did my meditation and I drank all my smoothies and I was still diagnosed with breast cancer. Why did my body betray me? So betrayal trauma uh, is, is on a spectrum. And I just wanted to put that out there because I think a lot of people assume betrayal trauma. Oh, it must be from a significant other, a partner. It could really happen to anyone you have a primary attachment to. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And what came to mind when you were sharing that as well is I remember, like, I can really resonate that with my love, Danielle. She had, she had a cardiac arrest uh, in that same year, the 2015. And she dropped dead for two minutes and came back. But in the last two years up to that, she had just been really pushing herself to get healthy, changing her lifestyle, changing her diet, exercising more and taking care of herself after herself coming out of a lifetime of trauma. Uh -huh. And um then that like she went through a period and only up until like really that i'd say the last year where she she called it she lost her mojo because she felt that she was she betrayed by all her efforts all her things like she'd done everything and it didn't work out and you know it's like ah oh, but that happened still regardless of all the good things i was doing it still it, it all went wrong my body betrayed me you know and it was really interesting um experience she's not in that place with it now and as soon as she sort of got through that sort of hurdle, uh, which wasn't easy, uh, that what she called mojo started to ignite again, that excitement for life again, to just do things because you want to rather than you feel like you're forced to. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And you're right. You know, uh, healing, healing after trauma, healing after betrayal is not easy um, at all. And that's one of the big reasons why people stay stuck in trauma because for many people, it's easier just to uh, ignore the trauma, try to numb it away with, you know, alcohol or drugs or porn or whatever. Um, some people think, you know what, it's, <laughs> I don't want to go there. It's too painful. I'll just stay stuck. Yeah, I had another guest and she was a hardcore addict for 25 years. Uh, meth, heroin, also every drug going um, since she was 14 years old. And I don't know, what's that, 25? So into her late, mid to late 30s, it must have been. And she went through all that trauma and it was like um, the time. And she said it took her, she was, we was having a conversation. She's like, oh, it took such a long time to, to get to a different place and to go through it. And I was like, how long is this long time? She's like, oh, it's like two years of like real hard work. And I was like, two years to undo 24? I said, that's a very quick time to me. Yeah. <laughs> I said, in the moment, it may have felt like a really long time, but it seems that our body, our mind, whatever we are, 
it can go in the right direction a lot faster than it can go in the wrong direction. It takes years and years of trauma and stuff to accumulate and to, to be there. But that time to change it may feel like a lifetime. But when you look back, in, it's can be months to years, and that's not such a long time. Yeah, you know, um, you bring up a very good point. I think a lot of time, um, uh, you know, trauma is not what happens to us. It's how our body responds to it. So you can have 10 people experience the same exact trauma. And, you know, three of those people, uh, it could really not affect them at all. The other three people, they could be completely jaded and damaged for life. And then the other three people anywhere on the middle of that spectrum. So trauma is not what happens to us. It's how our body responds to it. And one of the, um, one of the, um, reasons that some heal quicker than others comes down to resiliency. A lot of it's resiliency and resiliency is what are your inner and outer resources, you know, and that can, that depends on a lot of things, you know, um, from attachment styles, like, do you have a secure attachment or, you know, a fearful avoidant attachment? A lot of it can come down to, um, even your love language. A lot of it comes down to, do you have a supportive network around you as far as friends? Um, where is your self-confidence, your self-worth? So there, you know, there, there's, it's, it can get pretty complex, but I can see where people, I mean, I've worked with people that have had, you know, what would many consider minor trauma and they're 30 and 40 years out of it. And they're still very devastated when other people have what, what many would consider major trauma and in 18 months they've worked through it and they're fine. A lot of it comes down to resiliency. Yeah. And like you said, it's, and I imagine it's something that you, you had to practice and I'd be interested in, and maybe you say it'll come from your faith, but a big part of when I'm sharing, uh, like I share a lot of what was my traumas and stuff, and I hear a lot of other people's traumas and their life. And a big part of it is to be able to witness their events and not, uh, not judge them and see that someone's trauma could be being punched in the face when there was a child and that's the worst thing that's ever happened where someone else's loads of their family members were murdered in and like so you could easily get into a state where oh that's worse and this is worse and it's like no it's equal to the person and how their body is uniquely ex experienced it that's going to have the similar feelings even though the experience was very different but their body might have interpreted that in an extreme way um do you have a, a way that you practice to limit your or have no judgment on, say, your clients and just people and yourself? Well, most certainly. I mean, I you know, oftentimes when people, uh, well, first of all, it starts with when people reach out to me, um, they, they uh, will say, you know, I'd like to work with you, you know, A, B, and C, do you want to hear my story? And nine times out of 10, I tell them, I don't want to hear your story. Um, and, and the reason why is because oftentimes so many people are married to their story that they're, they're, they become their story. So I don't want to, I don't want, I, I, what I want to do is I want to get to know specifically where in your body is this fireball of trauma because trauma is like a fireball. It's like lava. Uh, and just like lava kills everything in its path, so will trauma. So I, what I want to do is, you know, um, I want to go back to that time there was trauma, which you got to be careful because coaches are not clinicians. And coaches more deal with the future rather than the past. 
But what I try to do is deal with specific trauma because sometimes, like I said, Luke, somebody will come in and they, they just want to be attached to their story. Oh, my wife did this to me four years ago. And then my uncle did this to me, you know, 10 years ago. And then my boss did this to me and I've been drinking and I've been this. And, and really what they want is validation. And I'm sorry, which is wonderful. And I do give them that. But so many times, you know, Luke, bottom line, there's benefits to staying stuck. There's benefits to staying stuck. There's benefits to not healing. And I, and I want to make sure that, that people don't stay stuck because the benefits outweigh uh, the perks of healing. When, when, um, when we're stuck in our hurt, Luke, we, we get our story. We get everybody we meet, we get to tell them our story and how hurt we are and how life has hurt us. (coughs) Um, we get to we get to play the victim role, you know. We get the the victim card. Um, we also get to um, not do the hard work of healing. We can say, nope, nope, I'm not going to ever trust anybody again. I was hurt. I was duped. I, I'm never going to trust anybody again. So you know, there's benefits to staying stuck. Um, but you know what I tell people, especially when they tell me I'm never going to love again. I'm never going to let down my walls or my guard. I'm never going to trust people. As I say, listen. That's your prerogative. And I respect you. Absolutely. Your body, your life. I respect you. But think of it this way. Uh, Do you know who Gordon Ramsay is? Yeah. Okay. If Gordon Ramsay was to get burned on a stove, which I'm sure would hurt a lot. I'm sure it would hurt a lot if he got burned. But what if he said, okay, because the stove burned me, I'm I'm never going to cook again. Well, he has that right. But he would never have those delicious meals ever again. So you can say, okay, I've been burnt in life. I've been, I've been jaded. I've been betrayed. So I'm never going to trust somebody again. I'm never going to fall in love again. That's fine. That's your right. But you're never going to experience the glory of true intimate connection then. Yeah. Like you say, you're only, you're only continuing to limit yourself and hurt yourself. It's not actually benefiting them. Other people that may have caused the impacts that have made you that way. It's a bit like resentment and anger. It's like you can, the, the person that's affecting is the person that's holding it. Yeah, absolutely. Which is, which is similar to forgiveness. You know, for, forgiveness is absolutely nothing to do with what somebody did to you. It's about you giving yourself the gift of letting go of the burden of um, stress and anxiety and strain that it's putting on your own body. Yeah, I put um, quite because I have a YouTube channel as well where I just share my journey and my thoughts and answer people's questions and thoughts with my own perspective and uh, thoughts basically and just how it feels for me. And forgiveness is one that I I dissect word. I I don't see words in a sort of what some someone would call it dyslexia, I suppose. But I see words a little jumbled, and in that through my process, I break words down and see them in different ways. And you know, the word like forego means to go without. So I mm-hmm. see the four is without, and it's like, okay, that's without giving. So I'm no longer giving energy to that situation anymore. It's for myself. It's not for them. And a lot of people I see with forgiveness, they think it's like, you need to go and tell that person, I forgive you now. And it's like, no, you're holding that yourself. You need to forego. You need to be without giving any more attention to that event that happened. Because that event might have happened, like you said, maybe yesterday, may have been 10 years ago, but you're still giving so much of yourself to it. Um, that it's ruining the place that you're in. Yeah. And you know, what's nice about that, Luke, is that when you break something down, you define it. And I think one of the 
problems people have with, with forgiveness is simple definition. If you ask 10 different people, what does forgiveness mean? You're going to get 10 different answers. You know, one person might mean, oh, it just means, you know, sit down with the person and shoot the breeze and you have no more problems. And another person could mean, you know what, that just means I'm going to give this burden to the universe or to God or to the nature. I don't want to deal with it anymore. So it's good that you break down the definition of forgiveness because so many times that word is thrown around and people have no idea (laughs) what their own personal definition is of it. Yeah, and it's something I like to always share with people, whether it's in person, podcasts, it's like if they bring up a topic or a word, I'll be like, can you describe that word to me? as So I know that we're having the same conversation because I see in so many different uh, contexts where people are having conversations and they're using the same word, but in totally different meanings. And you can see it and they're going back and forth for such Absolutely. a long time. Yeah, and you're I like, you're having two different conversations. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I find myself doing that a lot in couples um, coaching um, because, <laughs> you know, everybody says, oh, one of the main ingredients of, of uh, a good marriage is communication. And I say, well, not necessarily. People can talk all day long. That doesn't mean anything. One of the main important things is effective communication. And what that means is getting to know the communication style and the way that your partner speaks and and doing your best to both grow and understand and learn from each other and speak each other's language. So yeah, it's it's very important to define words. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's what's built mine and Danielle's relationship so much because of all the events we've been through together and how much time we spend together. And we have very open and effective communication. But part of that is we'll say something like just the other day, um, she's like, oh, I want to spend more quality time with you and I was like I feel like I'm spending so much quality time with you and I said can you define to me exactly what you mean because I I said I think we have different definitions of quality time together so then we had a conversation I was like oh okay now I know yeah she just wanted to go for a a longer walk more often (laughs) together uh, with the animals and stuff and I was like okay I'm thinking like these moments to me is what I define as quality time I said this conversation right now we're having to me is quality time together yeah, and to her, it's not. It's the, the, the different, and you have these different things. Even to like showing love, we was having a conversation uh, maybe last year now, and I was like, "How do you think I show love, and how do you show love in your actions?" You know, and she would go through and say, "Oh, I do these things to show love," and I was like, "Okay, that's com- not what I do at all. That's complete opposite." Yeah, and I said, yeah. "Well, I wouldn't even see that. That's what that it's like. That's not in my <laughs> view site." Do you know what yeah. I mean? I said, "All these little things you do." I said, "I don't." I don't do them for love. So I said, you might be thinking that because I don't do them, that I might not be showing love. And it was really interesting because it just, again, brought us closer and gave us a better understanding. And also oh, appreciation for the... the yeah. The, Are you familiar language. with the five love languages? No. So the five love languages are basically what you were just saying, Luke. It's um, every... So, well, the five love languages are this. There's um, gifts. There's physical touch. There's quality time. There's words of affirmation. And there's acts of kindness. And so basically everybody has, for the most part, a primary and a secondary love language. Um, And so what happens so many times is that people will come together and we speak and show people love using our own love language. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's the other person's love language, which is why I'll give you an example Um, there could be a couple and one of them has a love language of acts of kindness while the other one has a love language of quality time. So they're home together and one of them is out in the lawn, you know, maybe uh, mowing the lawn 
and then they come in and do the dishes while the other one is sitting on the couch sad because they, they're not getting any quality time. So now when you sit the couple down and say, okay, where's the disconnect there? One of them will say, I'm showing my spouse love. I'm cutting the grass. I'm doing the dishes. I'm doing all these things to show love. And the other person's like, well, that's not showing me anything. You're abandoning me. I want you to sit down and talk to me. So, so it's like both of them are doing showing love, but they're not hitting the mark because they're not, it's not effective love because everybody has a different love language, you know? Um, so basically it's what you were just talking about, you know, with Danielle, um, everybody speaks a different love language and you have to get to know the love language of your partner and start speaking that love language. Cause that's what, that's what they're going to, um, that's, what's going to speak to them. It's one of those, it's one of those cases where you don't treat others as you want to be treated. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a like it's not a bad say intention, but often, like you said, people are so unique and so different that if you treat them how you want to be treated, that might be the worst thing for them. It may be the best thing you would be like to be treated. I was actually watching a like a reality show the other day about like weddings with Danielle, and it goes through their whole wedding and shows whether it works or not and all them things. And what I found really interesting is when I noticed the vows that they said to each other, they wrote their own vows, and I realized everything they said in the vows is what they wanted. Yeah, you know they'll say, "I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do this, this, and this, and this, and this." And then, as you watch the relationship, when them things weren't met for themselves, that was their expectations on how yeah. they want to be loved. And every time that they weren't met in that way, it would cause an issue. And it's like they said they're doing it for the other person, but it was just like they were speaking to themselves. Oh yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. That's a very good point. When you know, uh, so I, I am a wedding officiant and, um, so many times when I have a couple in front of me, um, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, um, man, these, this couple are exchanging I do's when half the time they don't even know who the I am is. That's number mm. one. And number two, you're right. Oftentimes vows are projections. Um, you know, I will rub your feet every night. I will bring you tea in bed. I will blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, that's basically, you should just take your wedding vows and exchange it, you know, exchange letters to the different people and then read them. Because oftentimes what you're writing down is just what you need and want. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. If they just swapped them over and said, they're going to have a pretty good time. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, by the way, do you mind if I ask you what show you're watching? Oh, what was it? Um, because I'm addicted to Married at First Sight. And, that, yeah, uh, no, that's it. Married at First Sight. Love yes. is blind. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, no, Married <laughs> at First Sight, we started watching like a couple years ago. And I can't even remember how we how we got onto it. But I love uh, I love relationships. I think there's nothing more uh, exciting than um, relationships when they're working. You know, it's a beautiful experience. And, oh, yeah. and even when they're not, they're a good learning experience. Yeah, and I, I love to watch the the the, the physical chemistry the words the communication i love tv and film so i'm looking at it as a production and how it's filmed how it's edited how they can do things and twist things i just like it on so many layers um but it's also for me and danielle to watch it together it gives us so many talking points at the same time you know because we might pause it halfway through and say did you notice how he said that earlier and how it just wasn't heard and it was something really simple sometimes. And like sometimes they'll have questions or something that come up and we're like, we'll ask each other the same questions. So yeah. it's like, um, no, and I tried to watch a different, uh, I think the Australian one or something. And it was just really gimmicky. It's just like one of the, it was made for drama. Whereas I've watched the USA one 
and the people seem a little bit more genuine that they've gone there and the show's made it to try and actually make a relationship work. Yes, um, I agree with you. Is 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 the Australia one the one where couples, a bunch of couples go like to a resort and some of them stay together and some of them... I, I, I watched 10 minutes of it, to be honest. Literally, I tried to watch it. It was one that I think that was the very first time. And luckily, I didn't give up and I went to the USA one because I watched a bit and I was just like, oh, this is just, I don't, I don't need this input in my life. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah no, it's all about drama. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I agree. So, I, I watch, uh, um, I think, Love at First Sight. That's another similar one um, to M- Married at First Sight. Um, I watch Love at First Sight. It's, you know, same thing. It's a, um, uh, um, very similar premise as, as um, Love at First Sight or um, uh, Married at First Sight. Sorry, um, I never watched Ninety Day Fiance. I'm not sure um, how that is, but but yeah, I don't like the drama it's, shows at all. Um, it's so uh, funny. We we literally nearly watched the Ninety Day Fiance yesterday. We were thinking, should we watch this? Because we've we was up to date on the the new series of Married at First Sight. Um, we wanted to watch something to do with couples and, and love. So it was like, should we watch that? And we ended up not watching it. Um, so I don't know whether that's good or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I don't watch much TV, but I will say I do like um, um, shows like that. I'm, I'm not into scripted shows necessarily. I like the unscripted shows. Um, like uh, I, I enjoy also Dancing with the Stars. I don't know if you've ever watched that. but I've never that watched that, though. Yeah. Uh, I've heard of it. Only because, like, um, uh, I think that's such an inspiring show. It's taking people that really don't know much about dance and turning them into phenomenal dancers. And to me, it's much more than dance. It's just like about, you know, wow, whatever you put your mind to in life, you will succeed in. So it's an inspiring show. Oh, yeah, no, interesting. So with the Married at First Sight and you working with other couples and relationships, how much of you gets to just enjoy the show as entertainment and how much of, say, your uh, work mind mode kicks in? <laughs> you know, probably, uh, you know, it depends. It depends on many factors. But, you know, I'll just throw a, a, a number out there, maybe 50-50. Um, because I do, I, you know, I one of the, when you go into the mental health field, one of the things that's important is you don't bring your work home because, you know, Luke, obviously I, I, I talk to people that have been, you know, sex trafficked. I talk to people, I mean, like I talk to people that, that have the most horrendous, horrific circumstances. And if I were to take that home, it would affect me, my family, my life, my day, my body, you know, blah, blah. So, um, so I, I try to watch shows and just enjoy them. But, you know, we're human and um, a lot of our job does spill over into our personal life. That's with anybody. So um, I do find myself at times um, talking to the TV (laughs) as if I'm talking to a couple. But um, I do try to enjoy the show nonetheless. Yeah. And you watch this with your significant. Did you say you have children and you said you got family? Yes. Uh, Married um, over 20 years. uh, Well, well, uh, 20 and a half years um happily married um same person <laughs> um you know there's an old saying when you've been married long time you're you could be married to the same uh you could be married uh only once but to different people because <laughs> think about it you know luke you're a different person today than you were five years ago and you're going to be a different person five years from now than you are today. That's just the way life is. We're not necessarily human beings. We're human evolvements. So we're constantly evolving. 
we're learning, we're growing, we're aspiring, we're, you know, all this other stuff, not to mention on even a cellular level, uh, you know, we, we, we rejuvenate our organs, rejuvenate our skin rejuvenates every what five to seven years. So we literally become different people every couple of years. Um, for the most part, I mean, obviously we still have our core fundamentals to us, but, um, but uh, yeah, so I've, I've, I've only been in one marriage, <laughs> but married to uh, several different people because we've all changed. <laughs> but um, uh, and we have two beautiful adopted children, um, both at birth, um, uh, who are now um, 10 and five. Oh, nice. Um, I have two, two questions on that, but I just wanted to drop a quote in that I heard that you might like as well. I think it was from, I don't know if you've, have you heard of Earl Nightingale? It's quite an old speaker from a long time ago. Uh, I believe so. Yeah, there was a quote he's, he shared on one thing and I really liked it. And he goes, he goes, only my tailor understands me. He goes, because he measures me anew every time I meet him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, I was like, yeah. and like you said, we're always growing and changing. And I have seen that in others in relationships and I've even had it in a past relationship myself. So when you're going through changes and growths and someone holds you to your past, you know, that they don't accept the change that you're having and you see people grow apart because they won't accept that you're allowed to grow and change. And I had another guest and she said like her and her, her partner had a really bad relationship and it got really abusive. And she goes, they were like two plants in one pot fighting over the soil and wrapping their roots around each other. That If one tried to grow, the other one would strangle the other one down. And I see that in a lot of relationships that the actual growth, there's a fear of growth, you know, of like the person might grow apart from you. And in that they end up ripping them apart. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, there's so many challenges to relationships um, that it doesn't surprise me that divorce rate is as high as it is. It really, I mean, there's so, there's, there's so many, so many challenges to, to a long term relationship. Having said that, um, when you make up your mind and continually renewal, renew your mindset that you're going to make this work, you're going to work on it you can experience something so beautiful that you just can't even understand. Yeah. Yeah. And I also had a question, if you don't mind about your adopted children, you said you got two and there was adopted from birth uh, yes. and with their age, did you say five and 10? Yes. Yeah. Cause something I was always fascinated with is um, the children. I love children. Can't, I haven't got any yet. I thought I would have at least three by now to be honest. And I never did. And that's a, was a struggle for me at one point that became its own trauma because i've beaten myself up about it whereas now i'm in a in a good place with it and just one day i'll have them but my wow. ideal would be to have two children and one adopted child that's my ideal um and what i'm curious about is when and if your children know they're adopted like they could be listening to this podcast at some point for example <laughs> want to know what you're up to do they do they know and if they do how and when did you tell them uh, the word adoption has been thrown around very freely in our home since day one. Uh, both my children know they're adopted. Uh, my oldest, um, uh, you know, he, he, we're very, very, very free with how we talk about, you know, where our children come from. Um, and uh, when our son, because our daughter's only five, um when our son asks questions, we simply answer his question. We don't give him any less than what he asked for. We don't give him any more. We simply ask his question. And usually it's, oh, okay, thanks. What are we having for dinner? Can you explain, like, what was your process? Do you say that birth? Like, how, how do you go about even 
well, how did you go about even choosing where you was going to adopt from and how and the processes? I know it's an in-depth question, but in a brief, brief way, can you explain the process? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, we, when we initially got together, that was, that was, you know, something that we both wanted. We both wanted children. We both certainly could have children. Um, but we just figured there's so many children in the world that, you know, need, need a family, um, that, that we wanted to adopt. You know, we thought of surrogacy, but then we took that off the table, um, uh, uh, right from the get, because again, there was already children that just need love and a home and a place and things like that. So um, it was actually right after our honeymoon. I actually believe it or not, it was it was the last day of our honeymoon. We started the paperwork to to the to adopt, and um, we went with a um, with an agency, a local agency, and um, it, <clears throat> the paperwork is quite extensive. I'll tell you that it's quite extensive. It's quite intrusive the paperwork, but once you put in the paperwork and you create what's called a birth mother book, and that's, um, basically it's, you know, women that are pregnant that have an adoption plan. They look through these books that explain all about you and your partner and your family and, you know, why you want to have a child and blah, blah, blah. And then it's basically up to the birth mother who's pregnant to choose who she wants the baby to go to. And, um, so we were chosen uh, we met our birth mother on a Thursday. She was seven months pregnant with our son. We met her on a Thursday. The following Tuesday, we were in her. We were in our first sonogram with her, and we were in every doctor visit with her until she went into labor. We were in the room, um, helping her deliver the child. Uh, my spouse cut cut our son's cord. Uh, who, ironically, his name is Luke as well. Our little Luke. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, um, I, you know, ever since I was a little boy, I wanted two kids. I wanted a Luke and a Sylvia. Um, and, uh, I had those names ever since I was a little boy. So here I am now, um, as an adult and I have my Luke and Sylvia. So I'm thrilled. Oh, nice. Was that, was that, uh, an issue with your, with your wife in choosing names that you already had the names? Yeah. Um, I don't have a wife. Um, I, my, my spouse, uh, we're in a same gender marriage. Um, okay, no, no, I, you know, when I got married, uh, when I got married, my gift to my spouse was to take his last name. That was my gift to him. Um, so m- when I, <laughs> when I proposed and presented, uh, my thoughts with the kids' names, I, I said, listen, they're going to have your last name. And you can choose their middle name. I just want their first name. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how we negotiated and compromised. Okay, well, you, yeah, you got the first names. And really, that's the name that I think that sort of almost matters the most, because that's what you call That's the sound that you recognize. You know? yes, you know, and yes. That's, that's the you one know, you're going to be saying very, all day long. <laughs> yeah, and I had very good reasons um, for, you know, like, for instance, <clears throat> the number one reason um, I wanted uh, to name my son Luke was because of Luke in the Bible. Luke is a physician and a healer in the Bible. And um, and, I, and I just thought that was just such a masculine, manly name. And I loved it. And then years later, I happened to watch Star Wars and I saw Luke Skywalker and he was just profoundly good looking, in my opinion. So that even solidified it more so. I said, oh, I'm definitely naming my first son Luke. So, oh, well, it is, it is a good name. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and, um, and then my daughter, I named actually, believe it or not, after a, uh, a, a country singer 
that I saw one time. It's a long story. I won't get into it. But anyways, I have my Luke and Sylvia. So Luke was adopted from a private agency. And Sylvia, uh, long story short, Sylvia, was, uh, we were fostering. We went into the foster program and we fostered many, many kids. And one day we got a phone call that there was a little girl that was just born in the hospital. Um, her birth mother signed away parental rights and she was up for adoption. So within 45 minutes, our nursery went from all blue to all pink. And we went and got our little girl from the hospital. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, so how do, how do, I'm curious, like we're talking about relationships. And let me know, because I know we said an hour and it's five minutes until the hour's up. But I've got oh, a few more questions. Yeah, you're fine. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how did you how did you meet your husband? We're talking relationships. How did you first meet? So, you know, it's interesting. I um, uh, I grew up in upstate New York. I think we talked about that at the beginning of the conversation. I grew up in upstate New York, but I always I always had a passion for theater. I, I always had a passion for stage. And I always had a passion for television. So I told myself, when I get my bachelor's degree, I want to move to New York City and I want to pursue film and television and theater and things like that. And that's what I did. I got my bachelor's degree. And then I allowed myself a year to um, to move to New York City. Uh, I had my own apartment at the time. I had my own furniture, my own job, my own car. I gave myself a year to get rid of it all. And that's what I did. I got rid of it all. I either gave it away or sold it. And I moved to um, New York City. And I pursued film and television. You know, I was on the set of Sex in the City a couple times, Criminal Intent. I was did some background scenes and some movies. Uh, I wrote and recorded a dance album, and I used to, uh, you know, go around to different clubs and perform. I I was having actually having the time of my life, to be honest with you. Um, and um, and I I met my spouse online. To be honest, I was I was uh, on a chat line one time, and uh, he pulled me into a private chat. And uh, we just started talking and uh, we decided we would meet for coffee, but I didn't think it was going to go anywhere at all. I was very focused on my acting career. Um, so we met at Dunkin' Donuts. Um, uh, are you familiar with what a Dunkin' Donuts is? Yep. Yep. Okay. So we met at Dunkin' Donuts. Um, I think it was about 5 p.m. And uh, we watched the sun go down and then we watched the sun come up <laughs> and we were still talking. Um, oh, and it was then we realized, um, okay, I think, you know, maybe we'll have another date. And so what was interesting was, um, you know, when I got my bachelor's degree, I got my bachelor's degree in, um, in, in theater and in, in psychology. So I started coaching years and years and years ago. I started coaching before coaching even became, you know, popular or, or cool. Um, so, so I always had, you know, like the, the, the coaching mindset or the psychology mindset. So when it was time for me to come up with, um, a date, I came up with, um, taking, uh, taking him to believe it or not, Luke, I took him to a church to get a free sandwich, free soup and sandwich. Now, <laughs> I didn't take him to church to get a free soup and sandwich because I was cheap. I took him because a lot of people that are homeless and destitute and have nothing go to churches to get free soup and sandwich. And I wanted to see how he treated people that had nothing. 
And when I sat back and saw him engage with all of these people that had nothing, and my spouse came from a relatively comfortable family, financially, emotionally, spiritually. Um, I mean, he came from a very, very sound family. Um, And he was actually in medical school when we met. So he was on his way to become a doctor. So just to see him interact in such a loving, kind, generous way, I said, wow, this person is somebody of great character and somebody that might be worth pursuing, you know, more long term. Oh, nice. And yeah, an interesting experience. Yeah. And you said like 20, 20 years later now, did you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This November, it'll be 21 years. Oh, nice. Congratulations. Like, it's, it's to me, any a relationship, like, you're in it for the long. I think anyone that thinks they're not at the beginning, I think we all get in relationships to be in it for the longer, like the long game, you know, it's um, just can be difficult for some. <laughs> and that's where people be. like you it come in. Here. For a lot of reasons. I mean, I think when you first get into a, re- a relationship, you know, obviously there's all the dopamines and, you know, you're on a high. Um, and, and we go into a relationship initially with what I, with what's called a passionate love, which is why not to get, you know, pretty vulgar, but which is why a lot of times when couples come together, um, they're together like rabbits initially. I mean, unless you wait until you're married to be sexual, but a lot of times you come together and you're like rabbits, you're together all the time, physically, sexually, whatever. But then eventually what happens is that we go from a passionate love to a compassionate love. Um, now you still have some passion, don't get me wrong, but it's not based on passion anymore. It's based on compassion. But what happens a lot of times is after all that dopamine settles and and life comes in and now you have life stresses and life struggles, um, you, a lot of people want that passion again. A lot of people want that dopamine rush again. So that's what happened. That's why a lot of times, that's why they say relationships are the most difficult in the first two years, because that's when that dopamine dies down. That's when that passion dies down. And you have people jump from relationship to relationship to relationship because they're always seeking for that high. They're always seeking that passion. They're always seeking that adrenaline rush. Well, it's always going to go away. You know, that, that passion never lasts for, you know, more than a couple of years. And then you get into, you know, grown life, compassionate love. Yeah, and you see a lot in people that cheat as well. Like they go for someone just to have that beginning relationship honeymoon period where they don't actually know each other in anything, but they're just excited to see each other, talk to each other, kiss each other. Like you said, that early little stage of adrenaline and dopamine. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, nine times out of 10, I mean, obviously there's addiction, there's affairs, there's, you know, trysts. There's different reasons and ways that people uh, break vows. But a lot of times people just, I mean, face it, Luke, you're in a marriage. Um, If you're going to be together with somebody for the duration, you're looking at give or take 50 years, right? That's a long time. So think about it. Every day you get up, you go to work, you come home, you have dinner, you talk to the same person, you see the same face, you make love to the same person, you go to church on Sundays if you're a church person, whatever. Life can become very mundane. So a lot of times people are like, you know what? I just want a little excitement. I just want to feel that spark again. And next thing you know, two coworkers start talking or you're online and somebody pulls you into a you know DM or something. Next thing you know, you feel that spark. It was never meant to go anywhere, but somebody just wanted to feel excited again, which is why I tell a lot of people that, you know, have been betrayed 
you know, a lot of people will say, what did she have that I didn't have? Or, you know, what did he have that I didn't have? It's not about what somebody had at all. It's about somebody just wanted to feel a spark. Now, I I don't condone that. Please don't get me wrong. I absolutely do not condone that at all. But I just find it interesting how so many times we compare ourselves to the affair partner when really we should compare ourselves to dopamine and we can't. So it makes no sense to compare. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. I've, uh, before we get too close in, I have one more question because I didn't realize she was in a same sex relationship. I just, I'm always curious to know, like coming from the other side, um, I don't remember the first time that I knew that say I liked girls. Did you realize that you liked guys like what was that process and like when did you sort of come out and did you have any issues with that um so you know here's the deal i don't think any uh, let me take your your typical heterosexual person i don't think anybody is um you know 11 years old and says oh i think i like girls i think it's just something that you've always known you just there's there's different meanings to it at different times in your life. So, you know, um, for instance, I'll give you an example. Um, I remember when I was in, I think, second grade, um, the teacher gave us all scissors and I I could not cut anything out with the scissors she gave me um, at all. And the reason being is because I was left-handed. So you don't know, you. I didn't know I was different. I just always used my left hand to write with, to cut with, to open up the refrigerator door. That was me. I was always left-handed. So I never got to a point in my life where I said, hey, I'm left-handed. I just always knew I was left-handed. Same thing with, uh, you know, being attracted to somebody of the same gender. Um, it's not something that one day you wake up and say, hey, I think I realized something. It's just something you've always known. Um, I do remember having, you know, crushes like on my male teachers when I was in third grade. So, you know, certainly I think, um, you know, being gay is not what somebody does. It's simply who somebody is. And I always tell people that, you know, uh, any, whoever you're attracted to is simply who makes your heart skip a beat. Is that a male? Is that a female? It's simply who makes your heart skip a beat. That's all. So there isn't just this, you know, oh my gosh, I think I realized one day at this age. You just always know. There's just different words to it at different times in your life. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And what, was it difficult? Did you find it difficult with like social pressure and, and things in your life? You know, again, Luke, I think this comes down to resiliency. Um, I think because I've always been very street smart, very street savvy, very self-confident, um, very, I, you know, for as much trauma and abuse as I've gone through, I've always had a tremendous amount of self-worth. So it didn't bother me at all who I was. It didn't bother me coming out. If anybody had an issue, which really nobody did, but if anybody had an issue, it was their issue. I was confident in who I was. So a lot of it comes down to resiliency. Oh, nice. Nice to hear. Now, what's that? Where, where can people find you online? Like if they want to, do you put content out that people can just find and hear what you've got to say? Or can they book sessions with you? And is it digital now? Or do you have an office space? How, how does your practice work? You know, ever since COVID, I completely went um, uh, remote. And that seems to be fine with everybody. And, and one of the reasons be- being is that obviously I work with um, clients um, all over the globe. So, and obviously I, you know, you can't, can't have somebody from Ireland come to your office, um, every other Tuesday. Um, 
So that's nice. The other thing too is I offer sessions either Zoom or FaceTime or just on the phone. I also offer sessions via email because some people are in a safe space where they can talk on the phone or some people can only um, uh, maybe email on their lunch breaker at work and they can't talk. So, um, so it makes it very easy and convenient to do sessions remotely. Um, and then I offer, like I said, whether it's Zoom, whether it's a phone conversation, email, FaceTime, yada, yada. Um, but I will say this, my website, which is uh, the easiest website to remember, it's simply, it's my name, mrjrelationshipcoach.com. Um, and there I have um, many, many resources. Um, and I tell people this all the time, Luke. Even if you go to my website with no intention on booking a session or working with me, which is completely wonderful and fine, please go to my website and take advantage of my many free resources. I offer a lot of um, suggestions on products to help get through betrayal. I have a YouTube channel with tons of tips and techniques on how to go through betrayal. Um, I have articles. I, I mean, I have my website has a slew of free resources. So even if somebody never works with me at all, that's wonderful. Please just go to my website and take advantage of my many free resources. And again, that's mrjrelationshipcoach.com. Nice. Yeah. And I'll put, I'll make sure I put a link in the description. I'm going to go check it out myself as well. Um, no, it's fascinating. It's been beautiful to speak with you and hear your story. Do you have a few moments? I have a few fun questions. I just ask every guest at the end. Do you have time for them? Oh, absolutely. And so the first question, if you had to just choose one, a cat or a dog? Uh, I'm going to tell you, cat, uh, do you want me to explain anything or just answer the question as is? Yeah, it's completely up to you. You can give one answer or you can explain. Okay, I will say <laughs> this. Um, there is a saying that dogs live with you and you live with cats, um, but um, cats are far less maintenance. And right now I'm all about the less maintenance possible. But so cats, I actually have a cat. I love my cat. He's a main dog, oh, big, beautiful cat. Love him to death. What's your cat's name? Uh, Blazeland. It's a long story. I won't get into it, but Blazeland. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I have uh, five cats and a dog. So I've got Holy quite a few. Cow. It's a full time yeah, very... cat. <laughs> we do you know uh, and you might not have seen all my content if you've seen i live in a van full time so i there's eight of us in a van traveling <laughs> living together you're um, kidding that is fascinating and yeah we, the cats are all off leash they roam about pretty much 90 percent of the day we take them for walks with the dog um and they live like dogs <laughs> sort of oh my god that's fascinating okay that's fascinating okay go on yeah, just uh, we rest basically we rescued one cat. She was going to be put down at a little cafe we was at, and um, I was like, I'd rather she lived free for a day than she was just murdered. You know, I was like, she can live on the streets if she jumps out the vehicle and runs off. At least oh, she's yeah. free for a day. So we was like, we'll take her because she was be booked. She was booked in to be terminated for being a nuisance at the restaurant, and she was only about one years old. She was a tiny kitten, really. Uh, and within a month, and it was our first month moving into our van, uh, she was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And was like, uh, I think she's pregnant. We took her to the vet and the vet said, oh, no, it's only worms. Another oh week God. went by and I was saying to Danielle, I was like, nipples don't get big because of worms. You know, <laughs> and all her nipples are growing. Uh, and in the first month of us having her, she gave birth in the shower in the van and um, to a bunch of little kittens. And we was like, oh, we've got to rehome them and find a beautiful life for them. And it's three years later and we still have them all. So we have a whole oh family of cats. 
we have the mother and all her kids, but they're all they're all three years old now. <laughs> Do they uh, fight? No, no, they wow. all get on really well. And only uh, two weeks ago, we just got one cat back. He went missing a year and a half ago in the south of Spain, down at a beach. Uh, um, we spent five months looking for him, never found him, and we happened to get him back two weeks ago after a year and a half. How and he's back happen? in. Uh, he had apparently been living on a sushi bar, and I don't know if you know Spain well, in Marbella, which is like the richest, fanciest area on the south coast. Um, he had found his way to a sushi bar there, apparently, and he'd been just chilling out there for a year, a whole year. Uh, and then he got poorly. He was really sick, and they took him to the vet, and then they found out his microchip and that he's um, been registered as missing. So they rang us up, and we were six hours away. And they told us, you've got to get here now. He's going to die if you don't turn up. And you've got to pay for surgery. And you need to, we need your permission and signature. And we was like, we're six hours away. And they're like, well, we take no responsibility. Get here as quick as you can. Um, so we went straight there, got him. And we took him. And we actually gave him alternative care because he had a urinary blockage. Uh, and apple cider vinegar, water, some marshmallow, herb tea. And he was weeing that day. And now he's fine. And he is straight away integrated back in with the family and they were it was really surprising to watch their interaction they were really happy to have him back and he recognized them he remembers his name he sits on command still um so yeah it's just back to normal this is, <laughs> this is by far more fascinating than anything i've i've said during this whole interview it's funny i put content online and all my content yeah people i put all this stuff like it's going through depression or mental health awareness and everything and what gets the most likes anything i put up about the cats <laughs> what gets the most interest the cats <laughs> that doesn't surprise me oh my lord wow well thank you for yeah. sharing that it's amazing yeah if you have instagram if you follow me on there i'll, I'll check your account too but i don't know do you use yeah. instagram oh yeah i'm on yeah. instagram tiktok twitter linkedin all that stuff Okay, yeah, you'll find me at Luke Greenheart, and um, yeah, it's mainly, it's my lifestyle, so you see behind the scenes of my life, and I'll put up there when the podcasts are coming out, or YouTube videos, but it's mainly the cats and the dogs and nature. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, I will, sounds good. Right, I'll get back to the, these questions, so what's your favorite color? Yellow, always has been. Nice, and what excites you, motivates you? Um... Uh, looking at big bodies of water, I love. Um, uh, I love, love people that can sing. I, I'm obsessed with vocalists. I'm talking, you know, Patti LaBelle, Barbara Streisand, um, Donna Summer, uh, Jennifer Hudson, uh, Adam Lambert, people that can belt out this beautiful, big, huge sound um, is just, it, it, it puts me in a state of awe. Nice. And what does the opposite? What gets your energy low? What turns you off? Uh, well, child abuse really pisses me off, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, uh, probably, but, but I know that bothers everybody, but like it bothers me to a core. Well, I'm sure yeah. it bothers everybody to a core, but um, it, it, it's, you know, I always try and teach people to be really in control of your body and be in control of your reactions and things. But that's the one area where I probably have no control over my body. I, I, I become instantly enraged when I um, notice or see child abuse, um, extreme child abuse. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people that, you know, don't treat their children wonderful. And that's sad. But I think because of my own abuse. And I, I didn't have a voice then, um, that I, it just, it, it really challenges my, my powerlessness when I think mm. hear about child abuse. 
Yeah. Um, what sound, and it may be, you might say, the singing, what sound or noise do you love? Okay. Are you familiar with misophonia? No. Okay. So I'm going to give you the opposite of what you just asked me. Misophonia is when you have very troubled time listening to people chew or listening to pencils being tapped on a desk or listening to dishes being clanked when you're eating. Uh, I have misophonia. So um, if I'm at the dinner table, I always, always, always have to have music playing because if not, the sounds of chewing and, and forks touching plates, like, like really disrupts my nervous system. The sounds I like are um, beautiful, uh, beautiful um, nature sounds. I love nature sounds, the sounds of waves. Um, ironically, I do not like the beach. I do not like the beach at all, but I love water and I love the sound of water. Oh, nice. Well, the next question was going to be, what sound or noise do you not love so much? But you actually started with that one, which was interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yes, what, yes. what do you love about yourself? Oh my gosh. You know something? My determination, my willingness. You know, Luke, um, I came, listen, I should have been a statistic. Uh, with how I was raised, kids like me, um, uh, you know, they don't, they don't survive and they certainly don't thrive. Um, I, I should have been in a mental ward. I should have been behind bars. Um, but I did everything on my own. You know, I, I, I walked to my local community college, um, and talked my way into it, having a sixth grade education. Um, and I, and to this day, I have a master's degree with honors, um, my determination, my fortitude, my willingness. Um, I didn't know anybody in the entertainment industry, but you know, I went to New York and I was on the set of some of the best shows on TV. And I, um, uh, you know, I opened up for Jennifer Holiday. I, I mean, I was a no one, and and, and I'm not going to say I was, I'm a someone now, um, but but everything that I've done, my coaching, my, my adopting, my marrying, um, nobody in my world when I was a child was ever married for over 10 years. I'm going strong over 20. I'm, I'm, I love so much about my willingness, my fortitude, my, my determination. I'm very proud of myself. I'm not cocky, but I'm certainly confident. Mm, nice. Um, what do you love to see in others? I love to see in others that they notice their self-worth and everybody has a tremendous self-worth. You know, when I go around to schools and I give my little pep talks, I tell people, I say, listen, the day you were born, you were a present. You were a gift to the earth. You have to learn how to unwrap your bow and let your gifts shine. Learn what your gifts are and share them with others. We're all a gift to this world. Yeah, and no, I love that perception. That's a big part of my process. Like I, I went through lots of periods, like I said, where I lost my worth and my value and my self-love and I had to practice and rebuild and re-strengthen and um, not ignition, uh, what's the word, to recognize, you know, to actually see that they are already there. Like the way I describe it is like a gift as well. And I say, it's just that sometimes someone's wrapped, you know, when someone wraps a gift and for a joke, they've put tape around every seal really tight. So you just can't get in. And it was a bit like that. <laughs> it's like, yeah. there's a gift there. It's just a little tough to open sometimes, but it's there waiting. And you know something uh, I tell people, Luke, you know, cause people are like, well, I don't know what I have a passion for. And I'll say, but you know what? Purpose oftentimes doesn't come from your passion. Purpose comes from your pain and we all have pain. 
Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a, a nice way of putting it because I've shared that. I said everything has, everything from what I see has a polarization in laws of nature to just everything. So I was like, so why doesn't your pain have a polarization? I said, it must have. So your worst pain, and I'm not saying it's definitely the case, but for me it was, my worst pain offered me my greatest gifts. You know, it just happens to be there. If I choose, I have the choice to use my imagination to to create that gift. Yeah, I mean, if you take it, not to get on this long thing, but if you look at like a, uh, uh, Victor Frankl or Corey Ten Boom, who were uh, in the concentration camps in the Holocaust, or Nelson Mandela, who was in prison for almost 30 years, and they come out, what they did was they attached purpose to their pain. They attached meaning to their mess. Um, and so many people just want to stay stuck in their pain. But if you attach purpose to your pain and meaning to your mess, you can inspire generations and generations. Yeah, no, that was like a part of my process. Like it was, I realized I was in a certain place and it was like you go through the place of where there's this acceptance for say your And then I was like, there seems to be another stage that I'm craving. There's some, there's more to than just acceptance. I was like, I need to make a use out of this. I need to make this useful because it is useful. And then that was like the worth and the value and that service to others in giving that, that service and value. That was then the use and that just that gave much more stability in in my in my inner self is actually recognizing that yeah and do you know something luke i just want to say this and many people would disagree with me but i just want to say there comes a point when you go through pain where it's almost unfair not to use the gifts that you learned from that pain it's almost unfair not to share that so, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I don't want to burden other people with what I've been through or I don't want to A, B and C. No, no, you have a gift. You went through the school of hard knocks. You have a gift. Share it. I think that's that's a describe that's one of my descriptions on some social media. I can't remember which one it has. I think it's Coro, if you know that one where you answer people's questions and it asks for what school did you go to? And I was like, I dropped out of uh, my higher education. So I just put school of hard knocks. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and it says CEO of my life from School of Hard Knocks. <laughs> yeah, and there's and listen, there's no uh, there's uh, there's no um, substitute for experience. No, and it's like you said, that's what we have, and that's our unique value. And the last question I have for you is, uh, what do you love about animals? <laughs> this can be wild animals or cats or pets or whatever you perceive from that word. Yeah. Um, you know, I, uh, it, it's interesting. I, for years, I was fascinated with the, uh, with the, you know, nature channels. It's interesting because every animal has a different, um, uh, survival technique. And I think when I, I think because I spent so many years of my childhood in survival mode, it's interesting to me, almost fascinating to watch animals and see how they survive. Um, so I think that's what I do is I, you know, I, I, I look at their survival techniques and, um, it, it just kind of resonates with me because, um, I really had to tap into a lot of my survival techniques as a child. So, um, it's kind of just, uh, a learning process when I'm watching, um, animals. Plus on top of that, nature can be so beautiful. I mean, have you ever seen some of these birds with, I mean, it almost looks like they're cartoon characters with a beautiful plumage and the flower and the colors and stuff. So, um, nature can be absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. And it's sad that, you know, we as humans are knocking down so many beautiful, priceless pieces of nature, you know, the Amazon forest and things like that. So 
nature is absolutely beautiful and we can learn a lot from nature and, and including like the whole rejuvenation of it all, you know, if we leave it alone. Yeah. There's like you say, it's like someone having a garden and then thinking that they have to maintain it. And it's like, when you go into the wild, you, you see it's self maintenance. It's doing it itself. It's already maintained. You don't need to come along and do something. It's already regenerating. There's an order structure and life flourishes in that place. Yeah, and yeah, and it's a delicate balance, and we need to respect that delicate balance. But the same thing within our bodies. I mean, you know, uh, equilibrium within our bodies and our nervous system. It's a delicate balance. You really have to learn how to respect it. You know, respect that balance. Yeah. Well, it's been absolutely beautiful to have a conversation with you and hear more about you and your life and what you do. And I really wish you the best with your service you're providing. It's a it's a beautiful service to to, to serve others with. Thank you, Luke. I appreciate you giving me this time and um, and platform. And I'll be certain to look for you on uh, Instagram and other social media platforms. Yeah, just like I said, I've got lots of content on YouTube where I share all of life and perception. But I think you'll just go straight to the Instagram to the cats. That's where everyone <laughs> seems to go. <laughs> all right. Have a wonderful day. Take it easy. Uh, you God too. Bless. All the best. Much love. All right. Bye. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for being here and listening to The Selfish Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Greenheart, and I appreciate you being here. Don't forget to check out my YouTube channel. Just search Luke Greenheart on YouTube. You'll find me. Check out my website, lukegreenheart.com. Have an amazing day and stay tuned for more episodes. I'll be interviewing guests on their path of self-development, their path to self, getting to know them in much more intimacy, much more depth, sharing and connecting with all so we can have a much more blissful, joyful and productive life together. All right. Much love. Have a great day. Thank you.